Matthew chapter 5, we're looking at verses 7, 8, and 9. Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Jesus adds mercy, purity, and peace to his sermon. Remember, the Lord began his sermon describing kingdom attributes. He will continue to do that through verse 12. The attributes serve as an introduction to future kingdom actions. In verses 13 through 16, citizens in God's kingdom will serve as Salt in the earth in verse 13. Light in the world in verses 14 through and 15 and 16. And apparently what Jesus expects is that this kind of light will be a light that will be seen by everyone. Remember Jesus has already said, Blessed are the poor in spirit in verse 3. Those who recognize their utter dependence upon God. The men and women who recognize their spiritually impoverished condition. These are the men and women who have admitted their need to depend on on God in every area of life in verse 3. And Jesus continues with the shocking declaration of the need for citizens to mourn over their sin and the sin of others in verse 4. Jesus says to us, blessed are the meek, those who in transparency and humility are willing to live in submission to God's authority and righteous rule in verse 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in verse 6. Not not self-righteousness, but the kind of righteousness that has God as its source. It's the kind of righteousness that depends on God and relies on God. And it's the kind of rightness where you have a right relationship with God. So what happens when a person recognizes their dependence upon God in verse 3? Grieve over their sin in verse 4. Are willing to live under God's authority in verse 5. Accept the fact that only God can give rightness. And remember when you see the word righteousness in the Bible, you should immediately think to yourself, when the Bible is using the term righteousness, it means rightness with God based on what God says and based on what God requires. So the citizen in Christ's kingdom can exercise mercy in verse 7, cultivate purity in verse 8, work for peace in verse 9, and all of those things. When a person recognizes their fundamental need for God, The kingdom is given in verse 3. What happens when a person recognizes their utter lack of spiritual resources? They're given comfort in verse 4. What is the reward for those who live a life of transparency and humility? They embrace and receive the possession of the promises of God. They inherit the earth in verse 5. What happens to the person who hungers and thirsts for righteousness? They receive satisfaction and rightness 
in full in verse 6. What about the person who practices mercy? They're shown mercy. What about the person who practices personal purity? They see God. What about the person who works for peace? They're called the children of God in verse 9. Warren Wiersbe writes, We experience God's mercy when we trust in Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. He gives us a clean heart, Acts 15, 9. We experience peace within, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Having received mercy, we share that mercy with others. We seek to keep our hearts pure. Why? So we can see God in our lives. We become peacemakers in a troubled world instead of troublemakers. We become channels for God's mercy, for God's purity, for God's peace. Now, I want you to now connect the dots together. I want you to think about the process that Jesus has just described for a moment. God is in the process of emptying out our lives. He's trying to take the pride and he's trying to take the pretense and he's trying to take the hypocrisy and he's trying to pour it out, to pour it out in order to pour into our lives kindness and compassion and love and mercy. You see, there's a reason why there's this emptying process that sometimes takes place in our life. It's so that there can be a filling process. Now, look at verse 7, mercy in the kingdom. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Not in some sort of Hindu karmic sense. This isn't Well, you should extend mercy to others so mercy will be extended to you. No, actually, that's not what's being talked about. Because the truth is, you could be merciful to people. Letting them in front of you in traffic. And then you see they cut everybody else off. You see, the truth is when you exercise mercy, that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to extend it to you. I think that there is a certain sense in which the Bible teaches that if we show mercy and we sow mercy, we will obtain mercy. Why? Because Christ has been merciful to us. Mercy is a quality of God. Just like the Bible says God is love, guess what? God is also merciful and we can't earn this mercy. But God prepares the hearts of citizens in his kingdom to receive mercy. Let's pause for just a moment and ask a different kind of a question. What does it mean to be merciful? What does that mean? We get undeserved relief from God in the form of care, in the form of kindness, In the form of compassion, we get undeserved relief from God. And so whatever it means to be merciful, it means that you extend undeserved 
relief for those who need it. Remember, justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is receiving what you don't deserve. And so mercy is extending care and extending kindness and extending compassion. And care and kindness and compassion become the recipe for mercy. You know, there's an interesting story in Genesis chapter 20 where Abraham flees the promised land, if you will, and he goes into Egypt because they're starving. And he says to his wife, Sarah, honey, even though you're 70 years old, you're the hottest chick in the whole wide world. For some reason, you are so awesome and you are so beautiful that whenever a man lays his eyes on you, he feels like he has to have you. So I need you to do me a favor. I need you to tell everyone that you're my sister. Because the truth is, you are my half-sister, so it's not a complete lie. It's only a half a lie because you're a half-sister. It's half a lie. And so when people say, who is this guy? You say that I'm your brother. And sure enough, Abimelech takes Sarah and and brings her into his own house. And of course, everything that could go wrong does go wrong. The women stop giving birth. Everything dries up. There is a disaster. There is problems. There's all kinds of issues. Abimelech doesn't know what's going on. And all of a sudden, God shows up in a dream to Abimelech and says, if you touch her, I'm going to kill you. Now, you might think, that doesn't sound very merciful. But it's absolutely merciful. Because remember what Abimelech says? I had no idea. Here I am just minding my own business, um, acquiring women into the harem. And she is a hot chick and she's one of the most beautiful girls in the world. And I figured I'm the king. Why not? And the Lord says in verse 6, I know that you're innocent. That's why I kept you from sinning against me. I wouldn't allow you to touch her. And you see, God exercises mercies when you don't even know about it. I think some of you do know. I think some of you do know that the only reason why you're here is because God in his grace and his mercy allowed you to be here. God spared your life, not just once and not just twice, over and over and over again. God has been merciful to you. He didn't know he was in danger. He didn't know she was married. Yet somehow God prevents the king from touching her. This is mercy. We don't always see how God acts in mercy. We experience God's mercy. Even, I'm going to suggest to you, in times of disobedience. You want to know why? Because you don't get what you deserve. Your disobedience should have landed you in completely more difficult circumstances. God's mercy isn't based on our worthiness. But the proud cannot experience God's mercy. And the self-righteous are reluctant to experience God's mercy. Pride causes us to despise others. And guess what? 
That's why the proud can't be merciful. So what happens when the Christian experiences the love of God in Christ? What happens when you experience this laundry list of things that have happened? Humility, transparency, dependence. And now you experience the mercy of God, the the, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God. You want to be able to extend it to everybody else. Does it surprise you? That God is merciful. You see, we live in a culture and a society that doesn't really believe that God is merciful. We live in a culture and a society that for those who really do believe in God, they believe that he's upstairs somewhere with a gigantic club keeping a close eye on everything that you do. So that when you do something wrong, he can go, what are you doing? But that's actually not who God is. In Jesus' day, there were people who believed that God wasn't merciful. Just like today, there are people who don't believe that God was merciful. There were people in Jesus' day who didn't believe that he was merciful. You remember the story in John 8, where a woman is caught in adultery, and the men don't give a rip about her. They could care less about her. To, her, to them, she is nothing. She is just a useful tool in order to trap Jesus. And remember why they're trying to trap Jesus because they catch her in adultery they say you know the law says that she should be stoned what say you here's what they're hoping they're hoping that Jesus will say yeah let's stone her because people will go wow that's kind of harsh that's kind of draconian that's kind of over the top but if Jesus says let's not stone her then they, they can accuse him of being soft on the law or even a lawbreaker or not respecting the law. They have no interest whatsoever in this woman. They have no interest in mercy. They have no interest in knowing the heart of God or the truth about God. And you'll remember that in the story, Jesus stoops down into the ground and he begins writing. And as he begins writing, nobody knows what he's writing. People have speculated what he's writing. People have speculated maybe he began to write and say, oh, there's Shlomo over there. Oh, do you remember that little outside thing that you did in Phoenicia when nobody else was looking? Oh, there's, there's this guy and that guy. And he begins writing out all of the secret sins that they've committed. Or it could be that they're pressing him. They're pressing him. Tell us, Jesus, which is it? Stoner or not stoner? Which is it, Jesus? What do we do? And he gets up and he says those words that have been immortalized. You who are without sin, let you cast the first stone. And you'll remember in the story, the oldest man leaves the circumstance and then they begin leaving in order of their age, in order of the amount of sin that they've accumulated. And he looks up and he sees this poor woman and he says, where are your accusers? And I'm sure it was weeping, sobbing. I'm sure convulsively she says, they're all gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. 
And there are those people who will say, oh, Jesus really is soft on sin. Oh, Jesus really doesn't care about sin. Oh, Jesus is going to close his eyes and pretend like it never happened. But Jesus will die in the next two weeks. He will enter Jerusalem. He will be arrested. He will be crucified. And he will come back to life for this woman's sin. And for your sin. For my sin. Proud and arrogant people view mercy as weakness. And people listening to Jesus might have thought that this is the least of all the virtues. Once when Frederick II, who was the 18th century king of Prussia, he he went on an inspection tour of a Berlin prison and when he was in this prison, he was greeted by the cries of the, of, of, of the prisoners. I'm innocent. I'm innocent. They've got it all wrong. I shouldn't be here. Please, your majesty, free me. Free me. I don't belong here. I never did anything. And his eyes were sort of drawn to a person who was all by himself in the furthest part of the prison who seemed unaffected by all of the commotion. And he went to him and he said to him, what are you in for? And the person said, I'm here for armed robbery, your majesty. And he said, did you do it? And he said, oh, most certainly I did it, your majesty. I deserve my punishment. Frederick summoned the jailer. Release this guilty man at once. I will not have him kept in a prison where he will corrupt all of these innocent people who occupy it. There is in that picture a picture of Christ. The moment that a person says, I'm guilty. I deserve it. There's mercy available. John Corson wrote that the more mercy and grace that has been heaped on you, the more you should be willing to extend it to others, not judgment, not criticism, not analysis. He wrote, quote, I believe the more righteous a man is, the more merciful he will be. And the more sinful a man is, the more harsh and critical he will be. I think he's right. The person who's been given much, the person who's been extended much, the person who has been forgiven much, loves much. It really should prompt us to ask a different kind of a question. What do you believe about God? Do you genuinely, with all of your heart, believe that He's merciful? Do you believe that he desires to pardon your sins? Do you really believe that he loves you and that he's willing to forgive you? And by the way, the whole New Testament is devoted to the fact that that Jesus, King Jesus, comes to die for your sin. And so, again, what does this mean? What does it mean to be merciful? If it means meeting other people's Needs, if it means providing undeserved relief, 
Does this mean that this is something that the Lord expects from his people? Remember in Micah chapter 6 verse 8, even in the Old Testament, it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What are you saying, Gina? You mean I have to be nice to people? Well, what if they're not nice to me? Again, the fifth beatitude doesn't teach that mercy to men brings mercy from men. But the mercy to men brings mercy from God. And this is the key concept that most of us sometimes miss. You're not supposed to be nice to other people so that they'll be nice to you. You're supposed to be nice to people because God has been so nice to you. Jesus has been so generous to you. Jesus has been so gracious to you. And so the argument, I'll be nice to people who are nice to me, isn't a biblical concept. By the way, I want you to think it through. What happened when Jesus showed mercy? He showed just how merciless the religious system was and the political system was. He exposes the reality that the superficial religion and the superficial political circumstances are hard on people. Think it through for just a moment. Who is the most merciful person who ever lived? Do you think that Jesus is a good candidate? I mean... Did Jesus reach out to the poor? Did he reach out to the desperate, to the sick, to the dying? Were there even times when Jesus reached beyond the grave and brought people back to life mercifully? I think the answer is yes. Jesus reached out to the tax collector and the prostitute. Jesus reached out to the proud and the humble. He reached out to the sincere and the insincere. How else would you label Judas? The more Jesus committed to exercising mercy, the more the religious leaders committed to executing him. What happens if you are merciful like Jesus is merciful? There are going to be people who can't stand it. When the religious leaders saw Jesus eating and drinking with sinners and tax gatherers, they asked his disciples why their master hung out with such unworthy people. And you remember Jesus' response? The physician comes to heal the sick. Imagine when the physician shows up and you say, there's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine. The other question that I want you to ask just very quickly. Who do you find it most difficult to show mercy to? Do a little thought experiment in your brain right now. Who is the person you're least likely to show mercy to? Democrats? Republicans, relatives, your church family. I'll tell you who my most difficult thing to be merciful to is. It's when you're driving in the snow. 
and you're trying so hard to avoid an accident and you're trying to be careful and you're trying to be polite and you're trying to be generous and there you are and you see people and and you see them going like this exactly what they're saying but you know it can't be good (laughs) that they're completely disappointed that you're out there driving it's hard for me to show mercy to people who are experiencing road rage who's the toughest person for you and why do you suppose it is I suspect It could very well be because this is an area that we need help in. Look what purity in the kingdom does. It says in verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now we all know that to the pure all things are pure. When Jesus says blessed are the pure in heart, this purity isn't just simply sinlessness. He's not not talking about a perfect person. We can't say that we have no sin. In 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 it says if you say that you have no sin, you're a liar. And the truth isn't in you. I think that this has more to do with the presence of of truth in our hearts. The pure in heart have a single heart instead of a divided heart. The pure in heart are not divided between the truth that is in God and the lies that are in this world. This is the heart that isn't torn between the promises of God and the broken promises of this world. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? It means singular on the inside. The word pure means without mixture or alloy. In that sense, it means complicated, not mixed with something else. The word heart is cardia. You know that word. We get the word cardiologist, which is a heart doctor, or Anything else related to cardiovascular, it's, it's that word heart. And in, in this language, it was used to describe the inward person. This is the place where you think. This is the place where your attitudes are, your motives, your emotions, your feelings, your will. In Proverbs, we're told, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. In Proverbs 23, 7. When Jesus spoke to the religious leaders, the scribes, he asked the question, why are you thinking evil thoughts in your heart? Matthew 9, 4. And out of the heart, the issues of life come. Remember, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jesus said in Matthew 15, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and slanders. These are the things that defile the man. But in Christ, you're given a new heart. You're given a clean heart. You're given a pure heart. If you're born again, if you're born from on high, if you're born from the power of the Holy Spirit, you are made new. Let me ask you a question. Do you know the difference between clean and pure? 
I'm looking at a lot of gray heads out there, so I'm sure you grew up in the same generation that I grew up in, filled with commercials. Remember the commercial? Zestfully clean, zestfully clean, you're not really clean till you're zestfully clean. All soap is clean. Dial, Coast, Palmolive. You use them, you'll get clean, but there's only one soap, according to the commercials, that's 99.9999% pure. Ivory soap is pure soap. Ivory soap doesn't have deodorant. It doesn't have perfume. It doesn't have additive. It doesn't have coloring. Ivory soap is soap. Other soaps are clean, but not pure. Pure hearts seek only one thing. The will of God. When you examine your heart and you find something other than the person of the Lord and the will of the Lord, then guess what? That means that something is impure. Someone has written that in ministry there are three temptations that we experience. The temptation to shine, the temptation to recline, and the temptation to whine. We complain, we bow out, or we draw too much attention to ourselves. But the pure in heart see God. Why? Because they can't see anything else. They can't see anything else. The pure in heart have a singular vision and they're no longer distracted because they're looking at other people or they're even looking at themselves. Do you know what happens for the brief moment that you decide to look away from yourself or look away from other people and you decide that your focus and your vision is going to be exclusively on what God wants. And you might be in a place in your life where you're not able to see God. You may be a wandering in a, in a circumstance where you go, you know what, I, I'm not able to see God right now. I'm not able to perceive his presence And it could very well be because you're no longer pure in heart. And you might be thinking, well, what are you saying, Gino? What what are you saying? What are you accusing me of? Are you saying that something's missing in my life? Are you saying there's something wrong inside of me? Are you saying that something is not quite right? You tell me. You tell me. Has your vision of God been filtered, obscured, polluted by a bunch of additives and chemicals and preservatives and perfumes? Are you still clean but no longer pure? 
You see, God cares about what's going on inside of your heart. And God wants to reveal himself to you in your heart. God cares about you. And we can develop the disciplines of devotion and purity and worship. And you might have made a kind of a New Year's resolution. I want to read the Bible this year. You know what? It's great that you want to read the Bible and I hope that you do. But what if you add to your resolution, I want to read it. I want to understand it. And then I also want to do what it says. Purity of heart is not something that we work for, but something we desire and God grants to us. Purity of heart isn't simply ceasing to do everything that's wrong. Purity of heart is looking away from yourself and looking away from other people and deciding that you are going to fix your gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about this for just a moment because our culture values purity. It really does. Clean air. We want clean air. We want clean food. We don't want genetically modified food. We want clean air. We want clean food. But what is it about our culture and our society that so despises a clean heart? I would would guess that most of you, most of you, most of you have a clean home, clean kitchen. You clean because you don't want to live like that. So then why are we so open to a polluted heart? What would happen if, like David, you decided you were going to pray a prayer like, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Renew a right spirit within me. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. You see, the invitation isn't to be, quote unquote, a better person or a more moral person or the absence of doing wrong things. Because the truth is, when you take your eyes off of yourself and you take your eyes off of other people and you focus on the face of the living God, then all of a sudden life is going to be different for you. And look at peacemaking in the kingdom. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So who are these peacemakers? These are the people who are working hard to reconcile things that are at war, the warring factions. In Titus chapter 3 verse 2, Paul writes, we are to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable. And in verse 3, for we ourselves were once also foolish and disobedient and deceived, serving various lust and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating each other, unquote. The verses describe the person who's at war with God and who's at war with each other. And humanity, for the most part, is at war with God. 
Remember for those of you who decided this is going to be the year you read your Bible and you read Genesis chapter 1 and the story of the creation and you read Genesis chapter 2 and you begin to understand all of a sudden things go bad quickly. Humanity is created. The woman is in the garden. The serpent deceives the woman. They're cast out of the garden. She gives birth to Cain thinking he's the Messiah. She gives birth to Abel and both of her boys at least have a full-time job. But the older son is disappointed because God isn't accepting his sacrifice. And you'll remember, you'll remember, you'll remember. The Lord says to Cain, why is your countenance cast down? Why are you so upset? Don't you realize sin is at the door and it's crouching for you? It's waiting for you? And of course, it terrorizes him and takes over him. And his hatred and his jealousy causes him to kill his brother. And it goes downhill from there. We're at war. But the peacemaker is the person who wants to reconcile people to God and to one another. I want you to think this through. The peacemaker isn't just simply the person who wants to see an absence of conflict. The peacemaker is the person who possesses the gospel of peace because they have a right relationship with God in Christ. The absence of peace is one of the most obvious facts of our existence. There's no peace for two reasons. The opposition of Satan and the disobedience of man. All conflict can be taken in one of those two categories. Opposition of Satan. Disobedience of man. Someone has said that peace is that glorious moment when both sides stop to reload. It's the pause. One source reported that there have been 14,553 known wars from 36 BC until 1968. Since 1958, over 100 nations have been involved in some form of armed conflict. So, what is Jesus talking about? We know that God is a God of peace. We know that the Bible contains at least 400 references to peace. But the Bible says it's the cross of Christ that makes peace possible. And by the way, look what it says. Blessed are the peacemakers. But does this mean peace at any price? Does this mean peace absent holiness? Does this mean peace without recognizing sin? Does this mean compromise I don't think so compromise isn't peace Christians shouldn't be contentious as they contend for the faith the peace that Jesus speaks of has nothing to do with the peace of nations or the peace of governments or the peace of diplomats this is the inner peace of the soul that can only come when you have a right relationship with God, when you have ceased 
and desisted your rebellion against God. And because you experience the peace of God, then you experience peace with God. And because you've experienced the peace of God and you have peace with God, then guess what? Now you can fall into the category of the children of God because guess who the children of God are? The children of God are the people who have stopped warring against God. Only righteousness can produce this kind of relationship that puts warring parties together. Men can stop fighting without righteousness, but they can't live peaceably without righteousness. Righteousness not only puts an end to harm, but it administers the reality of healing and love. And you see, this is why having a right relationship with God is so important for your marriage, for your family, for your church. The great enemy of peace is sin. And believers can't afford the luxury of pretending the truth doesn't exist. It does exist. God is a God of peace because he's a God of righteousness. And because he's righteous, he doesn't avoid the truth. I want to ask you yet another question. In your reading of the Bible, do you ever see Jesus walking away from the truth Ignoring the truth, pretending like the truth doesn't exist. Jesus never ducks from wrong behavior or avoids the issues of sin. Remember what we've already said later in Matthew's gospel. We see Jesus dealing with some pretty heavy arguments and difficult situations. Jesus won't avoid the issue at the woman of the well who happens to be living with her boyfriend in John chapter 4. Or the woman taken in adultery in John chapter 8. He corrects her and her immoral living by correcting her ideas about false worship and true worship. I want you to understand part of what Jesus does. He brings peace, if you will, by inviting people to hear the truth about himself and accepting it. And guess what happens the moment that that happens? You experience peace. And we're left with some profound paradoxes. You mean the first or last? Yeah. You mean the least or greatest? Sure. You mean the troublemaker's a peacemaker? Uh Uh-huh. To come to terms on anything less than God's truth and righteousness is to settle for a truce which confirms sinners in their sin and leads them not towards the kingdom, but away from the kingdom. The person who invites you to experience peace without the God of the Bible, without the gospel, without the gospel message is inviting you to a false peace. Now think about what Jesus does. He unites the concept of peace and sonship and citizenship. And the central characteristic of God's kingdom is it's a kingdom of peace. 
And then you fast forward into that kingdom. The wolf lies down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the calf with the lion, the yearling together. The little child leads them. The donkey and the elephant lie down together politically. There's peace. But it isn't a political peace or a social peace. It's a peace that comes with the recognition concerning the identity of Jesus. Has Jesus given you peace? Have you experienced his peace in your heart? There's another question. Do you want to be merciful? Do you want God to create in you a clean heart? Do you want to be a peacemaker instead of a peace faker? Or a peace breaker. Or a trouble maker. Then listen to Paul's exhortation from the book of Romans chapter 12 verse 18. If it's possible, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Aren't you glad Paul said so far as it depends on you? Because sometimes no matter how hard you try. No matter how merciful you are, no matter how pure you are, there are people who won't let you. The Lord is merciful. The Lord is holy. The Lord is righteous. This week I had a chance to reread parts of a book entitled The Peace Child. Some of you may be familiar with it. Don Richardson tells of his long struggle to bring the gospel to a cannibalistic, head-hunting, Sawi tribe of people who live in the area known as Irianjaya in Indonesia. And try as he would, he couldn't find a way to make the people understand the gospel message, especially the significance of Christ's atoning work on the cross. And the Sawi villages were constantly fighting with each other. They were constantly at war. They were constantly killing each other. There was constant treachery, revenge, murder. Because in this culture and society, they elevated treachery. Murder was a virtue. The tribe, however, had a legendary custom that if one village gave a baby boy to another village, peace would prevail between the two villages as long as the child lived. And in that culture and in that society, they called that baby the peace child. And the missionary seized on the story as an analogy of the reconciling work of Jesus. Jesus, he said, is God's divine peace child that's been offered to humanity. Because Jesus lives eternally. He brings a peace that will never end. Yes, this child is treacherously murdered. But he comes back to life. And because he comes back to life, there is this opportunity to have peace forever. And it was the key that unlocked the gospel to this tribal group. In a miraculous working of the Holy Spirit, there were a few that said, I get it. 
I believe it. I understand it. And then a church formed. And then peace came to the Sawi people. Because each understood that there was a God in heaven who they could be reconciled to, and then they could be reconciled to each other. <laughs> this week, someone sent me something very interesting. I want to share it with you in closing. It was a recall notice for the new year. Here's the recall notice. The maker of all human beings, God, is recalling all units manufactured regardless of make, model, or year due to a serious defect in the primary and central component of the heart. This is due to a malfunction in the original prototype units named Adam and Eve, resulting in the reproduction of the same defect in all subsequent units. This defect has been identified as subsequential internal non-morality. S-I-N. It's primarily expressed in these symptoms. Loss of direction, foul vocal emissions, amnesia of origin, lack of peace and joy, selfish and violent behavior, depression and confusion, fearfulness, idolatry, rebellion. The manufacturer who is neither liable nor at fault for this defect is providing a factory authorized repair and service free of charge to correct this defect. The repair technician, J-E-S-U-S. He has generously offered to bear the entire burden of the staggering cost of these repairs. There's no additional fee required. The number to call for repair? P-R-A-Y-E-R. That's P-R-A-Y-E-R. Once connected, upload the burden of your sin through the repentance procedure. Next, download atonement from the repair technician, Jesus, into the heart component. No matter how big or small the sin defect is, Jesus is going to replace it with love, with joy, with peace, with patience, with kindness, with goodness, with gentleness, with self-control. Please see the operating manual, B-I-B-L-E, best instructions before leaving earth. For further details on further fixes, warning. Continuing to operate the human unit without correction voids any manufacturer warranties, exposes the unit to dangers and problems too numerous to list, and will result in the human unit being permanently impounded. For free emergency service, call Jesus. Danger. The human units not responding to this recall action will have been scrapped in the furnace. The sin defect will not be permitted to enter heaven so as to prevent contamination of that facility. Thanks for your attention. God! P.S. Please assist where possible by notifying others of this important recall notice. And you may contact your father at any time by email. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, for the opportunity to experience mercy, purity, and peace. Lord, we pray that it would become a part of our, our life, part of our attitude, part of our outlook. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Let's stand.